Good Friday, everyone. Welcome to the VolQuest.com Blue Water Climate Control Podcast. Glad to have you along on this Friday with Rob Lewis, Austin Price, Jesse Simonton. I'm Brent Hubbs. Kind of a unique perspective we're going to take here when you look at um, reviewing the game. Jesse, kind of going to do a little bit of a takeoff on your Sunday review piece, but it's kind of a review of the game six, eight months later. And today we'll start with Georgia State. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a game every week uh, reviewing the season. But we're not going to do like play-by-play of the entire game. We're going to review it from the standpoint of what we learned upon rewatch and then kind of how it spins forward into the 2020 season, provided that we're playing football in 2020. So today we're going to start with the Georgia State game. Obviously a huge disappointment for Tennessee, a shock to the world in that game as Tennessee loses 38-30 to to Georgia State. And, and Jesse, I'll start with you upon rewatch Give me your give me your biggest overall takeaway. Just kind of the, the maybe the theme of the deal, not not necessarily a specific deal, but give me your theme uh, of the overall takeaway. Well, I, I think you know this is the third time I've watched this game now. So first live and then rewatching it, you know that that Sunday for my piece, and now going back over it for a third time. The fact that Tennessee finished with more yards, had fewer penalties, only punted once, efficient on third down, and led in all four quarters at some point in the game, yet basically effectively lost by two touchdowns, if not for a touchdown that happened with one second on the clock, uh, was because they were they just Yosemite Sam themselves throughout the game. And it was so many mistakes, whether it was Jarrett Garantano turning the ball over, the kind of Chinese fire drill that kept happening on the offensive line, which I think is that's one of the things that we can talk about in terms of projecting forward. You know, who was Tennessee's best five guys going to be? Because they did not go into this game knowing they cross-trained the whole fall, and that proved problematic. You know, the problem simply how many times do we see, you know, Rob, guys just look totally confused out there. And they didn't so much get blown off the ball against Georgia State, but the, the fundamentals were bad. The gap assignment was bad, which then leads to who's going to be the inside linebacker next to Toa Toa. Toa Toa kind of flashed in this game. We saw – you know, his immense talents that he was able to prove the rest of the season. But it was kind of a, a you know, trial by fire that they did next to him with no Danny Batuli. And that's going to be the same thing we're looking at this fall. Yeah, I mean, how, how many times has, has it come up on the general's quarters? You know, what what kind of difference would Batuli have made in those first two games? And that that's something that, that certainly jumped out at me on the rewatch was just, you know, missed tackles, not, not, not setting the edge. Um, so I mean, Georgia State just kept themselves on schedule in terms of down and distance so many times. I mean, they, they were 10 to 17 on third down, and it wasn't like uh, Ellington was converting a lot of third and eights. I mean, they were it was third and two, third and one. They went for it twice and got it on 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 fourth down, short conversions. Just to me, just the the way they were able to to control the ball really stood out, and especially in the fourth quarter, just you know, kind of a couple of dominant drives to seal the game. And yeah, I mean, Tennessee shot themselves in the foot with, with turnovers, you know, Jarrett had a bad fumble that, that first play of the game, or I think it was the first play of the game, the interception, second play, of the game, yeah. second play the back, backwards pass. I mean, that just really kind of set the tone for the whole, whole afternoon. And I mean, it, it was bad watching it live. It, it, it was, you know, maybe even worse to see how, you know, Georgia state just got confidence as the game went on. And you could tell when they came out in the third quarter, they're like, Hey, you know, we can win this game. And, I mean, just really can control the, the the way they controlled the fourth quarter. 
you know, I, I mean, I, I, I knew it, but I haven't seen it the first time. But the, that just really stood out. I mean, because Tennessee, I mean, as you as you said, the opener, Brent, they they led all four quarters. You know, had a lead in, in the second half and just it completely, you know, shot themselves in the foot and let Georgia State just take control of the game. You know, Jesse, I, I thought it, upon rewatching it, and 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 I think they definitely missed Daniel Petuli. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But in rewatching it, I, I thought the defensive line got shoved around pretty good. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought that a you mentioned their gap responsibilities, but I thought there were times where Georgia State kind of maybe they didn't get five or six yards, but they really kind of moved the line of scrimmage, you know, two, three, four yards, giving them a chance in the run game. It says a lot about how much that group improved. But but I thought they were, I thought they were as bad up front as they missed Daniel Petuli in the front seven. That, that, that's fair. I will say this, because I brought this up in my review piece the day later, and it was even more evident kind of re-watching it for a third time and having that kind of in the background. How many times did, did you see plays uh, where basically the box was eight versus six? Yeah. Where Tennessee was just yeah. completely outmanned there. And so that actually leads me to another big picture thought re-watching this game. I think of all the games in the 2019 season for Tennessee, this is the one where the coaching staff let the team down more than the players. What happened down in Gainesville, I think we can kind of, when, when we get to that game, you know, I think that was just kind of a no-show by a lot of guys. But this was just a really bad game, in my opinion, from the staff. You know, they didn't call it, Pruitt didn't call timeout when, you know, when DeAndre Johnson's running on the field. How many times did we see the eight versus six? They didn't call it timeout when Tennessee's got three defensive linemen you know, way on the formation over to the right side, the play that got memed to death, uh, you know, that very week. Ty Chandler, you know, if, if you have, if you, if there's issues with his ball security, why do you let him return the first kickoff of the second half, but then never give him a touch? Um, so again, I thought the, the things that they did with the offensive line were just particularly strange. This, this game was more on the staff than probably any of the other, other losses in 2019, in my opinion. Rob, doesn't it feel like in rewatching it that Tennessee was, I don't want to say grasping at straws, but there was this, they were so unsettled at so many positions, which is why they were rotating so many bodies that they, they, they never really got any continuity going, you know, particularly in that game. And I thought it affected the first couple of games of the season. I agree. I mean, you look at, I mean, Jared was under, under pressure, you know, all game long, four sacks. That that was huge, you know. Had had the fumble in the fourth quarter that was kind of a game a game changer, and just I mean a couple of nice runs, but golly, I mean finished with less than a hundred yards rushing against you know Georgia State. That's just an SEC team playing that caliber of opponent. That's you know we 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 second guessed it at the time, not just us but everybody. And and Jesse mentioned it already the cross training that went on. I mean in hindsight, being twenty twenty, I mean I think that was a real you know, just just something that that came up and bit them in this game. Where you know, I, I think they probably thought that they, you know, we're gonna. I, I don't know if it's right to say that we're gonna line up and and be able to move them just because of, you know, it, it's a lower lower classification school. But that just wasn't the case. I mean, Georgia State was better in the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. You know, Austin, when you look when you look at the game and you review this game across the board, it, to me, it's about line of scrimmage. And there were some other things, but we're where Tennessee, it shows how much they improved throughout the season because they got better in the line of scrimmage, but they were really rough at the first part of this game in the line of scrimmage. 
Well, up front, I think Tennessee, you know, going in, you had a lot of defensive linemen that, you know, were just really inexperienced. Um, and then, you know, when you throw in, you know, the Marcus Tatums and those type of guys on offense. But to me, it's not just a line of scrimmage. It's also, you know, the Shannon Reeds, Will Ignites. I mean, you know, you just had guys that, to me, probably just aren't set, you know, for this level or did not have enough experience at the time for this level to be, you know, really, really, uh, you know, uh, and I know it's Georgia State. It shouldn't matter. But at the same time, I mean, Georgia State was hungry. Tennessee came out, I thought, uh, and, and thought they were just going to go through the motions. And, and obviously, you know, you know, from basically that second play on, you know, they, they had a few flashes, but not, not enough. You know, I, I thought Dan Ellington, the quarterback for Georgia State, probably didn't get enough credit. I mean, I didn't think he was very – going into the game, I didn't think he was very good. Any, you know, was going to be a very good passer. He wasn't great, but when you look, went back and watched the game, the way he handled the ball, read the zone reads and everything else – I thought I thought Dan Ellington was really good in this game for for Georgia yeah. State. I think I think he deserves credit, you know, and obviously the the blame and we were talking about Tennessee, but I thought Ellington was really good. Yeah, he threw it on the move really well, Jesse. I mean, you know, and they the, the you know you go back and rewatch it, and the the commentators commented on a couple of different times. You know, when he was able to you know avoid you know what little bit of pass rush that was there and kind of move the pocket a little bit. Um, he was very accurate, and I thought, you know, really, really, uh, you know, was able to, you know, he, he, again, not a huge difference maker, but a guy that, you know, moved the chains when need to be. And then the second half, um, you know, was just, uh, it was just I, I thought, super solid in, in his ability to, you know, extend drives and then get his team uh, back in the red area and score points. Yeah, I mean, he was only, Ellington was only 11 for 24, but I think your point of when he needed to make a throw, he made it. And, and, this was a game where, uh, again, Tennessee missed a guy that wasn't there. It wasn't available. And, and so Bryce Thompson suspended. So Warren Burrell has to start. And Warren Burrell got picked on a lot in this game. And, good point. And, you know, I, uh, where is gonna, where's Warren Burrell going to be in year two in this scheme? He clearly looked, uh, you know, was probably thrown into the fire too early last season, the first three weeks of the season. He really did struggle. You know, he makes his first career start here. They pick on him immediately. Again, What's going to happen at safety? I think that's a big concern. One of the th- one of my takeaways from this game, uh, upon another rewatch, Tra- Trayvon Flowers really struggled in this game, and he whether it was taking bad uh, lanes or or probably more importantly because you know everyone talks and Jeremy and, and you know Derek are really big believers in in, in Trayvon's uh, uh, ball skills, ability, ball skills, you know, ability to kind. Of come up with with interceptions and stuff but you also got to be able to shed blockers and he got just stuck in the tunnel or thrown out of the play way too often and for a safety that cannot happen um so that's kind of something to kind of watch going forward one final thought for me just kind of on the offensive and defensive lines this is the game though where i think it is going to get something out of Darrell middleton because he did flash a little bit same for greg emerson on the other side and this is why i think you can really spin it forward we all agree that this is kind of a make-or-break year for Jameer Johnson. And who knows? They could be a make-or-break week for Jameer Johnson. I mean, we don't know. You know, I mean, with, with, with as enigmatic as he is. Uh, but he probably was Tennessee's best offensive lineman in this game. That's the only game you could say that. But he, you know, both both on the eye test and even when you go back and kind of look at some of the PFF stuff, um, he was solid. And, and with the uncertainty – 
you know, about it is, it's, you know, health wise with some of these guys, can he kind of create a lane for himself? I think that's something to kind of, you know, keep, at least remember that he is still on this football team and could become a factor if he can play like he did in this one game. You know, I, Brent talked about this. I remember at the time, probably, probably about week three, week four, but you know, Tennessee goes down, they score their opening touchdown of the year on that jump ball to Mark West Callaway. And then it was like, they forgot that he could go do those things. <laughs> like, the fade, yeah. we're, like, we're like three or four weeks. And so, you know, I mean, like you go back to watch that. Then you also watch some of the little mistakes that Jarrett made in that game that were kind of a precursor of, of, of games to come. Like, you know, what easily could have been an interception there right before the half. And the you know, of course they get that's the one of the worst throw he's ever made. Yeah, correct. And, uh, you know, it just, again, you know, little things like that were just kind of, to me, a precursor of what was to come the next, you know, four or five weeks until things kind of got settled down and Tennessee found its rhythm on both sides of the ball, even though they were, you know, never really super consistent on offense. One week they'd throw for 400 and the next week they'd throw for 78. They still found, you know, a a playmaking ability throughout the course of the season. But in, in this game, to me, there were just little things that, you know, kind of highlighted, you know, what was to come the next, you know, month or so. Well, I and, wholeheartedly yeah. agree with that, AP. Well, I think, too, Jesse, and, and I wrote about this, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago, uh, but, you know, tennis, this was an example of the re- the start of the red zone struggles that Tennessee had all season long. And I think if you're Jim Chaney and, and you're looking and working on your offense for the fall, I mean, your red zone package last year should have been Slant to Jawan Jennings, fade to Callaway, where really your two throws in the red zone, because Jennings could physically could beat somebody inside on the slant most every time, and Callaway high pointed the ball better than anything. They didn't live on that. So as you look forward without those two guys, what is their red zone answer when the field gets shrunk down this year? How do they win in the red zone with this team? Because I don't think the red zone package last year was was good enough. So what does it look like this year? I think is a question mark coming out of this because I don't think they played to their strengths in the red zone, and it started in the Georgia State game personally. Yeah, and the other thing that started in the drive. I, I mean, I agree. Uh, and I mean, you wrote about it six weeks ago, and we followed it, you know, throughout the season last season. You know, looking at some of the the, the other notes I have here, just about JG. Uh, AP talking about a precursor of things to come. You know, Jarrett was really risk averse in 2018. You know, limited his his mistakes. Uh, he would he would he would take some sacks, obviously some ill advised sacks, but he wasn't throwing the ball in the traffic. And more importantly, uh, he seemed to at least have more side adjustments two years ago than he did last season. One thing that just completely stands out in this game that then happens basically for the next four or five weeks until he get or three weeks until he gets benched is he pretty much only went with his first read. And that, you know, he, he the, the terrible interception to Dominique Wood Anderson, I think probably the, 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 you know, play of the game in terms of what it did to stunt Tennessee's momentum. They get the sack fumble, they get the big play to DWA, and then on third and inches, he, or third and short, he throws it short of the sticks uh, to Austin Pope, who gets tackled effectively behind the line of scrimmage short when Callaway's right open on a on a on a seven yard dig if he had just gone to his progression um that's something i think we all agree jg's got to be better on as if he's a fifth year senior second year in a system with jim cheney you know he's not going to have the luxury of, of being able to just you know toss it up to Jawan 
over the middle um, when things break down or throw a back shoulder fade to Callaway. You know, his ability to kind of read through the progressions and kind of have the side adjustments. He did not do this in this game. And it was, again, a precursor for the next couple of weeks in terms of his turnovers. How he adjusts, you know, that in 2020 is going to be, I think, very noteworthy early in the season. Yeah, it was, it, to me, it was also like, no, it was not just JG on the precursor. I mean, it was little things like, you think about it, you know, you go late in the game, Eric Gray just gets obliterated uh, off the edge and, and the gives up that sack. The was terrible in this game. And, and, and But, I mean, that, then all of a sudden, that's what when Gray kind of fell out of favors because he could not, you know, they could not depend on him in pass protection. So, I mean, little things like that, obviously the defensive lapses. Um, and, and, you know, you guys talked about Batuli. I mean, you know, him not being there, I mean, does it make a difference? Probably. Who knows, though? I mean, again, you can't can't have revisionist history on that kind of thing. But, I mean, at the end of the day, Tennessee just wasn't super deep then and is not super deep now at that same position. So, I mean, you know, and, and in fact, to me, you're probably a little thinner just based off of you knew Batuli had experience. Now you may have some talent there with some guys coming in if Q moves over once he gets healthy uh, coming out of uh, this summer. But there's not no, there's not any experience there like you had with Batuli. Well, and but because you're right, Ippy, because you didn't have that experience there, you know, you you may have some talent, but you're also losing a month of work with that talent. Crouch was yep. going to be out anyway, but you're even losing some of the you know the mental stuff with him right now to help get him ready. So how ready are you? an opener with a guy playing in, the, in that new position, whether it's Crouch or even J.J. Peterson or whoever, that, that's going to be obviously a big question mark come fall camp when you look at this team. There's lots of question marks, but as magnified as it was magnified in rewatching this Georgia State game, inability to line guys up, make the right checks, reads, things like that, that question about the other inside linebacker spot is is magnified for this season because of what we saw at the start of last season. And the, the, one of the wild cards that you saw in this game that's still kind of out there that I think we get asked about once every three or four weeks is Jeremy Banks. You know, Banks played, you know, 15-some-odd snaps in this game, and he and he showed the good and bad of, you know, his, his athletic ability in that position. He drilled Ellington on, on an inside blitz where he was able to avoid – you know, a, a guard and, and, and get right in there. And then he was also responsible for not reading the play fake correctly down in the red zone and gave up a touchdown. Um, but, you know, if 33 is back on the back in the mix, does he, you know, suddenly become uh, a, a number or, or somebody else that's kind of a possibility as a potential answer playing alongside Toa Toa? Yeah, I think that's yeah, I mean, a huge I mean, question. Go ahead, Jay Austin. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, you go back. I mean, <laughs> he, that was I think the one play you're talking about, Jesse, is where he stand, stood up and talked trash and he was down 15. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, but, I mean, you're right. I mean, not a ton of experience, but experience in the system. You know, that to me, that gives, you know, a guy like Jeremy Banks maybe a leg up over any of those potential inside backers like a Bryson Eason or whoever come the fall if he is back because he's at least been through – Several practices at the position at the college level has played a couple of games at the college level. Now, granted, it's very it's a very small sample size, a very minute amount uh, to, to to look at. But to me, it get, does give him if he's in shape, and one would think he probably still is. Um, you know, a, a chance you know to come back in and and be a factor if they were to grant him uh, access well, to the team. 
before the quarantine, he's been working out at the downtown Y. So I've seen I've seen him squatting pretty good. The 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 other thing that jumped Jesse Simon was some inside knowledge at the Y. Um, some another thing that jumped out to me too is he's not a he's not a dynamic guy, but he just kind of seems to show up. And he showed up game one. He showed up in game thirteen for this team. Kevon Bennett is not a bad football player. He's not a great football player. I'm not saying that he's a dominant football player, but this is a guy that he just kind of shows up and makes a play enough plays and he's solid enough that, you know, he's got to be huge for Tennessee. He's not Daryl Taylor, but I do think you're at least solidified on that side because he made plays, you know, enough plays all season long to tell you he could play going back to this Georgia State game. Mentally as sound as anybody at that side. He plays with a higher motor than Daryl Taylor, I think. I, he's not as talented as DT, but he does. I mean, he run. Kavon runs to the football every single play, and I agree. I mean, he was on the five guys I had in terms of uh, players who stood out here. The question is, what happened? Here, what are they going to do opposite of him? Because I think they're pretty. They're pretty confident that Kavon can can kind of be that that you know go to guy. Uh, but DeAndre Johnson was up and down in this game. He had the huge hustle force fumble, um, but he also was one of the guys that was very poor in terms of gap control, in terms of kind of containing the edge on the outside. Obviously, whether it was his fault or the coach's fault, he runs on the field late uh, for the, you know, what, what ultimately was one of the go-ahead touchdowns there. Um, so, I, I, you know, the, the, the position opposite of Bennett remains one of the, the biggest question marks for this football team entering 2020. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. The other thing that stood out to me back to the offense side, and I know, I know Eric Gray was um, not, you know, he struggled in pass protection, but it's hard to look at that and look at him in this game and, and wonder why he disappeared to the degree he disappeared because – he was he was good in this game as a runner and as a as a guy catching the ball out of backfield. Pass protection, no question. But I thought all the backs were poor in pass protection. A little bit surprised that he disappeared for the long stretch that he disappeared in during the season. But going back yeah, but, and watching the replay of it, right? Well, it's just and that's going to be especially apparent after next week when we rewatch the BYU game where he right. you know gets fifteen some odd carries and it, and it's really good. Uh, his effectiveness did. I will say this. Uh, for whatever reason, and I think, you know, I, I think the running back, this is a good conversation to also kind of spin it forward. Um, Eric's effectiveness seemed to lose its luster uh, as the season went on, really up until the Vanderbilt game, because he just wasn't breaking tackles. Uh, you know, those spin moves and some of that stuff just wasn't really working. But this was also a game, guys, where it kind of, it was Ty Chandler in a nutshell, where he just kind of leaves you wanting more. Um he flashes a little bit, but there's too many mistakes. Uh, you know, I think that him, him him needing to kind of work on his hands, I think, is a big focus uh, for this offseason. Um, but the running back spot, I mean, it, it's pretty clear when you watch this game, Eric Gray has something. There is some juice to him, uh, and it's a real surprise they couldn't figure out how to kind of get him involved better uh, in that middle stretch, but then – you know, he came on like gangbusters kind of in the season. Yeah, he certainly did. A couple other things to get to in this game on this podcast. But before we do that, let me tell you a little bit about Blue Water Climate Control and their smooth sailing service plan. Blue Water offers their clients seasonal inspections, repair discounts, and annual tune-ups 
for one low annual price or a low automatic monthly payments. The smooth selling service plan includes semi-automatic or semi-annual seasonal inspections to perform routine checks, 10% off parts and labor on all HVAC repairs, an annual 40-point diagnostic inspection that includes your ductwork, prioritized response to air conditioning repair and maintenance needs, never pay overtime fees for those weekend and after-hour emergencies, and they have a loyalty plan as well. So call and get more on their smooth sailing service plan. Call them up at 865-299-2290. That's 865-299-2290. Don't forget to mention VolQuest.com. Rob, we're, we're talking, uh, we, obviously we've been talking about a lot of different things, Eric Gray being one of these. I, I think the other thing that jumps out about this game, when you look at it moving forward for Tennessee, there is some comfort heading into this season with the fact that they're going to be settled up front on their defensive and offensive lines because, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the musical chairs, if you will, with the offensive line uh, really affected this team with you know what's going to be no spring practice a shortened summer the fact that you know what you're like on the offensive line for the most part should help this team a great deal heading into this season I, mean, I, I think that's without question you know what you feel the best about if, if you're Tennessee right now is the line of scrimmage opened up last year huge question marks on the defensive line and and we talked about it, and that certainly showed up in, in week one. But, I mean, it got better and better as the year went on. And, I mean, it just contrast what happened in that fourth quarter um, against Georgia State when, you know, when Georgia State took it to them, you know, ran the ball when they had to, picked up short yardage, you know, with, with ease, and then, and then go look at what happened in November against Kentucky. I mean, it's, it, it's night and day. And if um, – if you're tennis and, and I'll throw Missouri in there too. I mean, got to stop when they had to have it. I mean, to, to win the game on the road and that kind of progress, I mean, defensively specifically was, um, you know, I, I think one of the best parts about the whole year when you saw, I mean, the, the pass rush got better, the ability to come up with stops when you needed it got better. And, and, you know, as we've talked about a lot, you bring every piece of that back in the trenches. I mean, you, you know, certainly you, you miss, you're going to miss Daryl Taylor, you're going to miss Daniel Batuli. But you've got a lot of answers there heading into this season where last year you had tons of question marks. And you had Emma Gooden back, not to mention a, a, a nice core group of freshman defensive linemen as well. So I agree with Rob. I think defensively there, there's a lot that can, you know, that, you know, none of this is ideal, missing all these practices and all this and potential for summer and who knows what else after that. But, you know, this team, because of the experience at the line of scrimmage, may afford itself a little wiggle room as some of those younger skill guys, whether it be receivers or linebackers, come along. Not to mention that, but also that offensive line, especially if Cade wins his appeal, to add Cade, Trey, and then Brandon Kennedy to that kind of inner side, you know, that, that guard-to-guard uh, part across the front, to me would be very, very big, not to mention a bunch of other guys that played a lot of football. Yeah, but I will say this: this game, this game showed, and as did BYU. Part of the problems of depth is nice, but if you don't know who your best five are up front in terms of offensively, I'm I'm all for rotating a bunch of guys defensively. But Tennessee played seven combinations in this game. I just pulled up the box score uh, beyond the box score piece. I did nine guys played. Carvin played the fewest snaps at 15. Kennedy the most at 72. Trey clearly looked rusty in this game. You know, Wanye played both left tackle and left guard. 
but with Oklahoma the second week of the season, you know, I think Tennessee's going to need to figure out wh- whether Cade's in that group. If he gets his appeal, where the two, you know, now rising five-star sophomores are in the mix. Uh, how does Jerome Carvin fit in? There, there's going to be, uh, I think, a temptation by by Will Friend and Jeremy Pruitt to, to play multiple guys early. Um, and this game in BYU is, is kind of a red light caution of, well, you better know who your main guys are. Well, and I think because of the schedule this year with Oklahoma being game two, I think you're going to experiment less because I think to a degree they probably felt like they could handle Georgia State and BYU in the line of scrimmage, rotate some guys. I think when you look at the fact you got Oklahoma week two, you got, you got to get settled quickly. And, and to their credit, you know, they didn't know how much Trey was going to be able to play. I mean, he didn't even start this game when, when he went in. Uh, Brandon Kennedy's coming off an injury, and then you're dealing with freshmen and Darnell Wright and, and Wanya Morris. You're just more settled there. You may not know all five, but you know probably four of those five right now, which is different. I, I would be stunned if they're playing six or seven combinations on the offensive line to open the season this year as they were last year. Last thing for me on this game is something that, that Coach Pruitt talked about. This team got better at it for the most part. That They weren't very good in the bowl game at it. But but when they did figure it out a little bit is when they, I thought, took off. Tennessee's inability in this game, Jesse, to play the middle 10 or the middle 7 or whatever the, whatever the number the coaches want to do. The last, you know, the last three, four minutes of the first half, first four or five minutes of the second half, Tennessee was awful in this deal. They, they gave away a touchdown uh, in the red zone, had to settle for a field goal at the end, and then Georgia State opens the second half pretty dominant uh, against Tennessee and moving the football with some misdirection stuff. Tennessee got better at that throughout the season. I think it magnifies the importance of the middle part of the football game that you've heard so much from you know from Dabo and, and, and Jeremy Pruitt and all these other guys throughout the course of this past year. Yeah, I mean, they, they kind of they they lost their composure at you know inopportune times, and it happened in both the first and the second half. Uh, and like you said, really outside of of the Indiana game, they did a nice job of of correcting that uh, kind of post Georgia or post Alabama, um, really when they kind of went on that that big run. I, just a couple of the quick hitters for me in terms of takeaways from this game. You know, Tennessee, I think, is going to enter 2020 with probably one of the best kickers and most reliable kickers in the country, and it started in this week. You know, no one knew that Samagli was going to emerge uh, as as such a kind of consistent force for the balls. He goes three for three in this game, 48-yarder. Distance, you know, had been a big question in terms of kind of consistency with him. Um, that was big. Uh, and, and I, you know, um, Tennessee special teams as a whole, I think, this year are going to be interesting. What happens with the punter now that you lose Joe Doyle? You add a grad transfer. Um, but who's returning kicks? I mean, they, they just really got nothing in this game. They've got nothing most of the season. Um, so that's going to, I think, be, be something to kind of, you know, uh, follow kind of as this as this rewatch unfolds and, and what do we kind of pick up on. Yeah, and I think when you look at special teams, they struggled really all season long to make a lot of plays there. So can they generate some plays in the kicking game, in the return game this upcoming season? And as you mentioned, who are possible candidates for that? So this is kind of how this thing's going to go week to week. We're going to look at the game. We're going to rewatch the game. We're going to look at highlights, lowlights from the game and talk about how it, what it means for this team moving forward. 
what it meant for this team throughout the rest of the season last season. Uh, so we're going to continue to do this each and every week, uh, talking about uh, the game. So obviously next week we'll jump into BYU. It'll get better as the season goes along because Tennessee won some games. But I do think there are some really important things to review that you can learn from this to, to keep an eye out for this team coming into this fall. Question marks, areas where this team grew, uh, and, and how they're going to benefit from that growth moving into the 2020 season. That's going to do it for this review portion or this season review of the Georgia State game on the Blue Water Climate Control VolQuest.com podcast. For Jesse Simonton, Austin Price, and Rob Lewis, I'm Brent Hubs. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.